Hi there, and welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, where we bring you the latest and greatest in all things medical oncology. This week, or today, we are wrapping up our ESMO Spectacular. It has been two and a half weeks of roller coasters, ups and downs, practice changing research, and a million terrible jokes. As always, I am accompanied by the illustrious and magnificent co-host, Dr. Michael Fernando. Michael, how are you on our final frontier journey of ESMO? To quote, um, I think it was Shania Twain, look how far we've come, Josh. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think that uh, a million bad jokes is probably an underestimate or a conservative estimate. You give us two and a half weeks of pretty much daily podcasts, we're going to blow past that number. But I completely agree with everything you said. It has been a wild ride, some disappointing, but a hell of a lot of good at ESMO in 2023. That's it. And even the disappointing research is still promising because it is that trial and error in the research sphere. And oncology has lagged behind most other specialties for the last 50 years. But here we are racing ahead. And as we have said many times on this show, a negative study is not necessarily a bad study. It's still answering a question. And in many cases, it means that we're not giving treatment that would end up being futile. So it's almost as important as a positive study. Exactly. Equally, if not more. Michael, let's not beat around the bush. Let's take this final step together. And do you want to talk to us about your first study? Absolutely. So today, as mentioned in the last episode, is our plenary session with a bit of an asterisk attached there. This plenary session is going to look at two studies that we think are two of the best studies presented at ESMO. We have done plenary studies in previous episodes, Checkmate 77T, the perioperative Nevo was one example, but these are the creme de la creme. Michael, maybe we did a sandwich approach when it came to the plenary sessions and the plenary uh, presentations. Is this like a sandwich compliment? Yeah, sandwich compliment or nivolumab in the perioperative space, either way. A nivolumab sandwich or a surgery (laughs) sandwich. I don't know. Anyway, so we're keeping in the lung sphere, which is why I mentioned Checkmate 770 before, but the study I want to talk about is Mariposa 2. It's one of two Mariposa studies presented at ESMO, and I'll briefly mention Mariposa 1 or just Mariposa uh, towards the end, but this I thought was the more immediately applicable study. Mariposa 2 is a phase 3 global randomized controlled trial of amivantamab plus chemotherapy with or without lazertinib compared with chemotherapy in EGFR mutant advanced non-small cell lung cancer after progression on osimertinib. We've talked a lot about areas of need in the last two and a half weeks. This is a major area of need. Resistance mechanisms after osimertinib are diverse and polyclonal. Gone are the days where you could re-biopsy someone and look specifically for a T790M mutation. There are multiple different mutations that confer resistance to osimertinib. And the fact of the matter is we don't have enough drugs to overcome this resistance. 25 to 50% of these resistance mutations can include EGFR and MET alterations. And up until this point, the only recourse we have when people progress on osimertinib is platinum-based chemotherapy. In our practice, it is most frequently in the form of quad therapy, in the form of uh, the Empower 150 trial of carboplatin 
paclitaxel or depending on where you work, pemetrexed, plus atezolizumab and bevacizumab. We've mentioned before, it's based on pretty shoddy evidence and exploratory analysis that was unplanned of 40 patients receiving this regimen. So the evidence is pretty poor and the outcomes are still relatively poor as well. Amivantamab is an EGFR-MET bispecific antibody targeting two surface markers that has immune cell directing activity and is active against a wide range of EGFR and MET alterations. Lazertinib is a highly selective CNS penetrant third generation EGFR TKI. The addition of amivantamab to platinum-based chemotherapy with or without lazertinib could address osimertinib resistance. That's the hypothesis of Mariposa 2. Are there ways for us to improve outcomes after osimertinib resistance? Because as we said, osimertinib, EGFR mutation lung cancer, prognosis, life cycle, whatever you want to call it, is a bit like a cliff. It's flat or a slow drop while you're on a TKI, while you're on osimertinib. And then as often as not, it is a pretty much vertical drop with very, very poor outcomes. So the study design. There were three arms to this study and patients were randomized two to two to one. The first arm was a quadruple agent arm with amivantamab, lazertinib, and chemotherapy, taking the form of carboplatin and pemetrexid. The second arm was a triplet with amivantamab and chemotherapy without the lazertinib. And the third arm was the control arm, which was just chemotherapy. It's important to note that the randomization was two to two to one, but unlike most such randomizations, the arm with the fewest patients was the amivantamab chemotherapy arm. So something to consider. Key eligibility criteria were locally advanced or metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, documented EGFR mutations with the usual suspects exon 19 deletion or L858R translocation. Patients had to have progressed on or after osimertinib monotherapy as the most recent line. So they could have had chemotherapy in the first line, which I believe is still done in places where osimertinib is hard to get your hands on. Importantly, stable brain metastases were allowed and they did not have to have radiation or definitive therapy, which I think is very, very important because most of these studies will only allow patients with brain metastases if they are treated, not necessarily if they're asymptomatic. So that is a very good subgroup to look at, a very interesting subgroup to look at when you're trying to assess the CNS penetrance of these agents. Patients were stratified according to whether they had osimertinib in the first line or the second line, whether they were of Asian extraction, and whether they had a history of brain metastases. The dual primary endpoint was progression-free survival by blinded independent review of the quad arm versus chemotherapy and the triple arm versus the chemotherapy. Important to note that like many of these three-arm studies, the quad arm and the triplet arm are not powered to be compared together. So any comparisons are a little bit fraught. Secondary endpoints, overall response rate, duration of response, overall survival of particular interest, and we will talk about it, intracranial progression-free survival, time time to subsequent therapy, progression-free survival after the first subsequent therapy or PFS2, symptomatic PFS and safety. This is an early presentation of these results, so a lot of these secondary endpoints have not read out yet, but you can see that this is, once it's all said and done, it's going to be a very robust study with a lot of information to take away. 
in terms of the demographics, relatively well balanced across all three groups. Important to note that there was a roughly 70-30 or 60-40 split favoring the Exxon 19 deletions compared to the L858R. Remember, L858R mutations are the ones that historically do worse. Most patients had had osimertinib as first line of therapy, and a little over 45% of patients in the three groups had a history of brain metastases, and half of those had not had prior brain radiation. So anyone who treats lung cancer knows that the number of times that a very common presentation of lung cancer is actually symptomatic brain meds. The first time I ever saw this, a patient had presented with a fall and hit their head, presented to ED. As with any patient who hit their head, she got a brain scan, didn't show a bleed, but showed a whopping great met. So this is a very common clinical picture, and it is a very, very good secondary endpoint to have in this study. It's also worth noting that serial brain MRIs were required for all patients on this study. That is something that in the subsequent discussion was noted to not be present in Flora 2, which was the addition of osimertinib to chemotherapy, but is, again, a good way to assess the intracranial efficacy of these agents. So now we come to the results. Both co-primary endpoints were met. So both the triplet and the quadruplet arm are better in terms of progression-free survival when compared to chemotherapy alone. For the triplet, that's the amivantamab plus chemo without lizertinib, the PFS was 6.3 versus 4.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.48. In terms of the quadruple therapy, the PFS was 8.3 versus 4.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.44. So the triplet is numerically inferior, but again, we can't statistically compare these two arms because the study was not powered for that. The benefit was consistent across all subgroups. In this study, when we say all subgroups, we mean all subgroups. Every single subgroup was left of the line of equivalence, which was fantastic. Notable hazard ratios among these subgroups, patients with brain mets had a hazard ratio of 0.52 and patients with L858R deletions had a hazard ratio of 0.3. This discrepancy or this slight discrepancy between EGFR mutations is potentially overcome by this combination. Secondary endpoints, the overall response rate was 64% in the triplet, 63% in the quadruplet versus 36% in the control. They express these as, as odds ratios, so a little bit weird, but this equated to an odds ratio of 3.1 for the triplet and 3.0 with the quadruplet. So you're three times more likely to have an overall response compared with some combination of amivantamab compared to chemotherapy. Of note as well, both investigator arms had a 60% partial response rate. That is a reduction in the total volume of tumor with no new measurable lesions of more than 30%, which is just fantastic. You see a lot of these uh, trials and they have a, a sort of a bell curve, I guess would be the best way to describe it with the majority of patients having stable disease, but that was not the case here. Intracranial PFS is, as mentioned, another interesting secondary endpoint. In the triplet arm, the intracranial PFS or IPFS was 12.5 compared to 8.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.55, and this was statistically significant. In the quadruple therapy arm, the PFS was 12.8, again, compared to 8.3 with a hazard ratio of 0.58. Now, lizertinib is sold as a CNS penetrant TKI, but these results call that into question as to how much 
benefit it is actually adding. An exploratory analysis of patients who had not received radiotherapy for pre-existing brain mets, remember that accounted for about half of patients, confirmed no difference between the doublet and the triplet, even though, again, you can't really compare the two. Early overall survival data was also presented, emphasis on early, as both the triplet and quadruplet arm are not yet statistically significant. There is a trend towards benefit in the triplet arm with a hazard ratio of 0.77, but interestingly not a trend to benefit in the quadruplet arm with a hazard ratio of 0.96. So that's all the good stuff. Now we come to the bad stuff, which is toxicity. And the fact of the matter is both of these experimental regimens are quite toxic. Grade three or higher treatment-related adverse events were noted in 72% of the triplet arm and an amazing 92% of patients in the quadruplet arm. The most common side effects were hematological toxicity. It should be noted, though, that this was was something that was seen partway through the recruitment of the trial, and they actually made an amendment to the quadruplet arm where patients only started the lizertinib, the TKI, after they had completed the chemotherapy proportion. It's as yet unknown as to whether this has any effect on the rates of hematological toxicity. It is very toxic. So that is the trade-off for all of these great efficacy numbers that we are seeing. So in conclusion, to conclude Mariposa 2, which is a fantastic study in design, in execution, and in results by my, uh, by my reckoning, there is a significant benefit in progression-free survival with both the triplet and quadruplet combinations when compared to chemotherapy. The overall survival benefit remains to be seen, but given the high rates of toxicity, this will need to be confirmed before we actually start using it over chemotherapy, because if there's no overall survival benefit, you're not really going to use it. There is the interesting phenomenon, I guess, of the quadruplet therapy and the triplet therapy having similar numerical results. So I wonder whether even though they're not powered to be compared, we're looking at a similar outcome to the Beacon trial in the colorectal space of um, BRAF mutant colorectal cancer, where they found that the doublet combination of encorafenib and cetuximab was just as good as encorafenib and binimetinib and cetuximab, but the binimetinib added toxicity. So it might be a case that lizertinib is not needed in this space. There are a couple of questions and discussion points. As mentioned in the introduction, our standard of care, that's Josh and my standard of care for patients after EGFR, after progression on osimertinib is Empower 150. Now, there was no immunotherapy in the control arm, you might have noticed, but that's because this is not a global standard of care. As mentioned, the evidence for immunotherapy in this space is pretty shoddy. Empower 150, very small results. And then there was a subsequent Keynote 789 study, which failed to show a benefit with the addition of Pembro to chemotherapy, with a hazard ratio of 0.84 and a non-statistically significant p-value. So that is perfectly explainable. However, there are a couple of questions as to how amivantinab plus minus lizertinib is going to fit in the schema of treating EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And the main one is the effect of flora 2, where osimertinib was added to chemotherapy. Obviously, if you have patients who progress on or immediately after chemotherapy, if you combine it with osimertinib, how does that impact the efficacy of amivantinab plus lizertinib? It would be interesting to see how those agents did by themselves without the chemotherapy backburn. There is also the question about if we're talking about flora 2, could we bump this multimodal agent plus chemo regimen to the first line? 
the main drawback with that is that amivantamab is a intravenous two-weekly infusion. And if you're comparing it to the Flora 2 study, yes, you had the chemotherapy proportion, but after chemotherapy, patients were on osimertinib, which is obviously an oral-only agent. So for patient convenience and patient preference, they might prefer Flora 2 to Mariposa 2. In addition, and this is where I'll bring it back to the Mariposa 1 trial or just the Mariposa trial, this was a examining that combination, the amivantamab plus lazertinib alone compared to osimertinib in the first-line treatment. Again, there was a PFS benefit and a trend towards overall survival benefit, but still immature data. Much like Mariposa 2, the combination arm was much more toxic and patient preference comes into it again if you're uh, encouraging them to have a two-weekly IV infusion when the alternative is a chemotherapy tablet, then a lot of patients will prefer to go for the chemotherapy tablet, particularly if it's better tolerated and doesn't require them to come into hospital every two weeks. So this combination may be relegated to very fit patients with CNS disease or a high disease burden. And there's lots of other questions and queries. But Josh, to summarize Mariposa and Mariposa 2, it is very exciting how we're still looking for ways to improve what has been a unequivocal success story. Michael, what an interesting study and what terrible toxicities as well. I think that really stood out for me. Because a big part of the appeal of osimertinib is its tolerability as well as its efficacy. So it does throw that into sharp relief when you look at these toxicities and always has to be kept in the back of your mind. Exactly. But look, it is a second line treatment and we've been screaming for something potentially targetable. And I think if this is the first generation of a second line treatment, there's always going to be more that they're going to refine these drugs. So super, super exciting stuff. Do you mind if I jump across to my trial? Please do. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. This is the best, the gold medal winner trial, the standing ovation of ESMO. I won't tell you what it is because that's Josh's uh, due, but if you take one study away from ESMO 2023, it shall be this one. And Michael must love me because when we divvy these up, he's like, Josh, you can you can do this one. I'm like, yes, what a win. <laughs> All right, so we're at the grand final podium, everyone, and this trial has gold. This is the EV302 Keynote A39. It's an open-label, randomized, phase three study of enfortimab vedotin in combination with pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy in previously untreated, locally advanced, or metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Let's dig into that background. We know it is a bad cancer. There are 200,000 deaths each year, and it consistently ranks in the top 10 of diagnosed cancers globally. Overall, the five-year survival rate is poor and has not really changed in recent years. There has been a plethora of phase three trials, which have failed to show superiority over the standard of care chemotherapy followed by immunotherapy. Avalumab, which is approved in the first line, is maintenance therapy in a subset of patients whose disease has not progressed after first-line platinum-based chemotherapy, although there is a high unmet need, especially given that cisplatin ineligibility is quite high. 
And then prior trials of PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors in the first-line setting fail to improve survival in this context. What we know about the current landscape is this. In Fortimavidotin, which is a Nectin-4-directed ADC antibody drug conjugate, it truly is my, my one true love, Michael, antibody drug conjugates, and, and pembrolizumab, a PD-1 inhibitor, have individually demonstrated survival in previously treated advanced and metastatic bladder cancer. I want to say that that's his one true oncology love if his wife and daughter are listening. Yes, apologies. I'll correct that. Thank you for, for picking up picking that up. I so got you back, Josh. Thanks, Mikey. So combination was granted, well, accelerated approval was granted for FDA for treatment of patients in this context who could not have cisplatin. But what we didn't know is what are patients who were cisplatin eligible and compared to that standard of care. And that's where this trial comes in. It is literally standard of care versus EV302 and pembrolizumab. Absolutely goosebumps, Michael, just goosebumps. So the patient population and the trial schema goes as follows. Those that had untreated or unresectable disease, they're eligible for platinum, EV and pembrolizumab, and they had not have a, had prior immunotherapy. They had to have adequate ECOG status and a good GFR greater than 30 mils per minute. They were randomized one-to-one to receive the combination of Enfortimab, Vidotin, and Pembrolizumab, or chemotherapy with the dual endpoints, overall survival, and progression-free survival with a host of secondary endpoints of the objective response rate, safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Really good thing about this trial, and I'll put this up front, is that those that were on the standard of care arm were allowed Evalumab as maintenance therapy if they didn't progress and as per the current guidelines. So I really like that it was against the actual standard of care rather than some made up somewhat elusive standard of care that people do not use. The demographics are pretty well balanced. 850 people were con- were enrolled in this trial and pdl one expression was seen in 58% of each arm. They defined it as greater than 10% the CPS score. And 78% had visceral metastases. So a lot of people did have advanced disease. 30% had upper tract tumors. Lower tract was 69%. That's just based on the delineation where in the bladder um, and the genital urinary system these these cancers arise. At at this moment in time, this is the summary of disposition. 33% of patients still remain on the EV Pembro arm and this is to be continued until disease progression. And chemotherapy was only given for six cycles and then stopped. Patients who completed treatment was 1.8% in the EV301 and 55% in the standard of care arm, with progressive disease seen in 34% of the EV302 and Pembro versus 16.4% in the standard of care. And Michael, you're like, that doesn't make sense. It does make sense because... That, that number, that 16.4% is taken from when you finish the chemotherapy component. It's not taken from when you're having the maintenance therapy. So the actual follow-up time for where you're at in that disease progression is going to be very different in the intervention versus standard of care arm. But of note, and probably a little bit weirder, the AEs was high in the EV302 and the Pembro versus standard of care, but also longer treatment duration, longer follow-up. Let's move to what you all really want to know. The progression-free survival 
based on blinded independent clinical review, it had a hazard ratio of 0.45, with a median progression-free survival double that of the standard of care being 12.5 months versus 6.3 months. And at the 18-month mark, 43% were still PFS or had no disease progression versus 11% in the control arm, which is triple. It's it's almost, almost triple that of the intervention arm. So absolutely magnificent. And like Michael's study, I can say with confidence that when you look at the forest plot, it, none of them crossed that confidence interval and they all showed benefit for those that had EV302 and hemralizumab. What a what a what a mind-blowing surreal event. Like this is this is history in the making. I I do not have shares in this company as a side note. <laughs> no, we're not we're not trying to shill anything here, but th- you can see why it got that well-deserved standing ovation at Esmo. That's it. And if you look at the overall survival, as I said at the start of this, this is the first trial to ever and I mean ever in the history of humankind show that we have something better than standard of care chemotherapy that beat the overall survival. They found a 53% reduction in the risk of death with a hazard ratio of 0.47. The median survival follow-up at this point in time was 17 and a bit months, with a median survival being 31.5 months in the intervention arm, not reached, versus 16.1 months in the chemotherapy arm alone. The benefit was also seen irrespective of those that were, you know, cisplatin eligible or carboplatin eligible. So remember that there, there was always that definition between who could have cisplatin and who could not, which is really just really, really exciting. The PDL one status did not matter. There was benefits irrespective of the CPS score and irrespective of where in the urothelial tract this cancer arised on. And the overall survival benefit in the forest plot all benefited EV302 and pembrolizumab. There was no crossover again in this case. Moving on to the nitty gritty, the juicy part. We're already in the juicy part. This is the more juicy part. So the objective response rate was seen in 67% in the EV pembro and chemotherapy was 44%. The best overall response rate you saw complete response in nearly 30% on EV Pembro versus 12% in chemotherapy. You saw partial response in a further 38% in EV Pembro and 32% in chemotherapy and stable disease in 18.8 versus 23%, that one favoring chemotherapy. Progressive disease was less in the EV Pembro and there was a couple of people that were not, you know, not valuable. The median duration of response has not been reached in the EV302 Pembro arm and is sitting at seven months in the chemotherapy arm. Subsequent lines of therapy, 60% of patients in the chemo arm received PD-1 or PDL one as the next line of therapy. About 30% of those patients went on to have maintenance of Valumab, which is quite similar to that of the existing data or so the presenter set. Adverse events, relatively similar, slightly higher in that of the chemotherapy arm when we're looking specifically at grade three, and hematological toxicities was more prominent in chemotherapy. Peripheral neuropathy, rash, and hyperglycemia was more common in the EV Pembro arm. So something I wanted to highlight is that EV 
has been known to cause Steven Johnson syndrome and you've really got to keep an eye out for that. So any ulcers, bad rashes can become quite concerning. There were four treatment deaths in both arms and there were no treatment-related deaths that were adverse events of special interest. So this is my summary, Mikey, and it's been a whirlwind of the last two and a half weeks and I've loved every minute of it with you. But this is the first time we have a combination treatment that has bested the standard of care therapy that's been around for decades. It's durable. It's probably got a slightly better side effect profile. It beats progression-free survival, overall survival, and is now the standard of care for first-line treatment in locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma. A fantastic study. Really, really fantastic. And what I particularly love about this combination is that it all but kills this consideration of cisplatin eligibility versus ineligibility. It's a hurdle that we come up against so often with urothelial cancer. And now we don't even need to think. It's just EV plus Pembro, obviously keeping in mind all of the things that Josh said. EV for our Australian listeners has recently come on the PBS, not in the first line context, but I think you've had to, you had to have had a few lines of therapy prior. But I think it's only a matter of time before they approve the EV in combination with Pembro. Let the negotiations begin. Yes, absolutely. A fantastic way to end our coverage of ESMO 2023. Josh, thank you for powering through a truly mountainous amount of studies. And thank you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this ride. As mentioned previously, we have had a fantastic response. Lots of people tuning in, lots of people engaging with us. And when I say us, I mainly mean Josh on social media. And we really enjoy bringing this information to you. Thank you very much for listening. Josh and I are going to have a bit of a hiatus for the moment, but you you can rest assured that we're going nowhere. We will be back with more Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind very soon. See you then, Mikey. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com. Yeah.